Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Nicholas Dufus and today I'm coming to you from Halifax in Canada with our guest expert, Professor Manahar Bance, an otologist and neurotologist and head of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the QE2 Health Services Centre and Dalhousie University in Halifax. He is the director of the Ear Lab, a middle ear mechanics laboratory at Dalhousie University. Today he is speaking to us about middle ear mechanics and specifically how research in this area can translate into practical applications for ear pathology and surgery. Professor Bance, welcome. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, so we'll start off with first question, why is an understanding of middle ear mechanics important for ENT surgeons? Well, it's um, every time you operate in the ear, you're changing the mechanics of the structure. So uh, if you don't understand how the change you're making uh, change, how it's going to function in a mechanical sense, it's very difficult for you to optimize uh, and truly understand how you're going to try and get sound into the cochlea through the middle ear. Um, so it really is at the heart of what you do as an ear surgeon. Um, what is meant by an impedance mismatch? Well, impedance mismatch refers to uh, the ability to transfer energy from one structure to another, in this case acoustic energy to mechanical energy uh, inside the cochlea. So an impedance mismatch occurs when uh, when the, uh, the impedance to transmission of energy through one medium is different than through another medium, and there's reflection at the interface. So a classic example of this is when somebody's swimming underwater, and you can't hear somebody's shouting outside the water because it bounces off the surface of the water. So essentially, with an impedance mismatch, not much of the energy gets transferred, most of it gets reflected back. And so how does the human ear, the tympanic membrane and ossicles overcome this impedance mismatch? So there are several mechanisms that occur to different extent in different animals, but in the human uh, uh, ear, uh, the most important thing is that a large surface area uh, called the, the tympanic membrane uh, collects uh, a uh, collects sound and focuses it down to the foot plate, uh, which is a much smaller surface area. So you take a large volume velocity because it's a large surface area vibrating at relatively low uh, low amplitude uh, is focused down to much smaller surface area, which has higher pressure then, but lower volume velocity. So essentially, there's no energy gain; it's just a gain in pressure. So that pressure then is enough to drive the cochlear fluids. Uh, without that, most of the uh, most of these acoustic energy is easier for it to reflect back into the ear than to be transferred on into the much denser and higher impedance cochlear fluids. Uh, so that's the most important uh, mechanism in humans. There are other mechanisms: the cicular lever, the length of the lincus and malleus, uh, which is a minor uh, point in humans, and the catenary lever, which is controversial, which is uh, uh, due to specialized curvature of the tympanic membrane on the malleus. But those are much less important in humans. Really, the the uh, the surface area ratio of the tympanic membrane to the to the over window describes most of the the uh, impedance matching in humans, at least in low frequencies. Okay, so um, the differences in transfer functions of the middle ear with respect to low and high frequencies, how do they differ? Well, because the the transfer function uh, is dependent mostly on the surface area ratios of the two structures, that really implies that the eardrum has to move in and out as a piston-like structure, uh, and the low frequencies it does. Uh, actually move in and out uh, like a piston-like structure below about a thousand hertz. So it's relatively efficient because you have all the eardrum moving in and out uh, in one, in, as one, not, not as a rigid body, but in phase. Uh, above uh, that, at higher frequencies, everything starts breaking up and the, like any membrane that, that is flexible, uh, starts vibrating in different, um, in and out of phase in different nodes. Uh, and at that point, then you don't really have the same surface area focusing down because you reduce your effective surface area. 
The other thing that's different that's uh, different in the high and low frequencies is that in the low frequencies, the amygdala is uh, primarily stiffness dominated, uh, almost entirely stiffness dominated, uh, below about 1,000 hertz. So uh, small changes in stiffness have a big effect there. Uh, they don't have as much of an effect in the high frequencies, and they don't. In the high frequencies is not really one part that you could say is purely mass dominated, but mass becomes more more important in high frequencies. So changes in the mass will tend to affect the high frequencies more. Changes in the stiffness will tend to affect the low frequencies more when you're reconstructing the ear. Okay, um, can we talk a little bit about the cave and minor approach? What is it? How exactly does it work? And how successful is it in your experience? So, because the middle ear really uh, only gives about 20 dBs or so in gain, and that's mostly low frequencies too, despite uh, the, the ideal case, we might expect uh, 30 dBs or so. In, real, in the real world, we get about 20 dBs of gain. That's, that's because you get a pressure gain at the, at the over window. So, it doesn't really matter what happens at a round window, because almost all the gain, uh, all the hearing happens because of the pressure gain at the, at the, uh, at the over window. Uh, now, and that's what I call the uh, pressure gain peak out, pressure gain to the over window approach. And uh, so most of us to reconstructions try and do that. But if you really can't get efficiently get the pressure gain to the over window because you have a completely collapsed middle ear, no ventilation, whatever, another approach is to take the atmospheric pressure and try and shield the round window. So because the, the basal member will only vibrate if there's a pressure difference between the over window and the round window. So it's much more efficient to bump up the over window by 20 dBs. But if not, then you can try and re reduce the pressure at the, at the round window at least, uh, and you give up the 20 dB gain of the middle layer, uh, but uh, you can get to within 20 dBs of, of normal hearing. Uh, but in my experience, I found it unreliable because there's always some thickening or whatever you put in the over window that acts as attenuated. You don't really truly get uh, the atmospheric pressure applied to the over window directly. Now, you know, there are people who have masked the split skin graphs, etc. Uh, perhaps to more extent, but uh, really you need to need to apply the entire atmospheric pressure to the old window. Anything that attenuates in the way reduces the efficiency of that approach. And you need, also need to have a ventilated carbon miner uh, so that the round window has to be connected to the station tube somehow. Otherwise, if you have fluid or other structures, then the round window itself is a high impedance, uh, has meets a high impedance, so it can't really vibrate itself. Okay. What do you feel are the key factors that affect hearing results and cause things to go wrong with ear disease or in particular after ear surgery? Well, whilst all the factors that affect hearing ultimately work through mechanics because uh, everything affects the mechanics uh, uh, if it's going to be a middle ear problem at least, uh, the things that we see in practice uh, are uh, basically things like ventilation, uh, post-op serious, uh, serious fluid, scarring, Displacement of the of the uh, t of the prosthesis, thickening of the tympanic membrane. Uh, so those are the key factors in, in, in most ears that determine the hearing results. Um, and those are things to do more with the biology, perhaps, of the ear than to do with the mechanics. Uh, well, they certainly affect through the mechanics, but then through then through the uh, fine mechanics of prosthesis that you're using and those kinds of things. The round window baffle effect is often mentioned as a cause of a large hearing loss with perforation. What are your thoughts on this, and what do you feel are the main causes of hearing loss due to a perforation? Well, the round window baffle um, idea is kind of baffling in itself because uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, 
the wavelengths of sound are so large at audiologically relevant frequencies that the the uh, round window and the oval window experience almost the same pressure, roughly. Uh, so it does not matter where the perforation is, the sound pressure experienced by the oval and round window is very close to each other. Even if you, even so, people talk about a phase cancellation effect at round window. Uh, but even if if you have a 20 dB gain at the oval window, that's 10 times uh, atmospheric pressure in, uh, at the oval window. Even if the round window was in phase or out of phase, it would add one or two dBs to that. So it's completely dominated by the uh, uh, by the gain at the oval window. Uh, so really, there's no uh, there's uh, there's nothing to suggest that the that the location of the perforation relative to round window makes any difference. Now the size of the perforation seems to be the main effect, and there's some very good work by Susan Voss at all. Uh, looking at round at perforation sizes and uh, uh, and how they affect the uh, the hearing loss and and one of the main contributors seems to be the loss of the uh, loss of the baffle effect of the tympanic membrane. So if you have a hole, then the sound pressure gets transmitted to both the middle ear and external ear canal at the same time. So there's not much of a transmembrane pressure differential to drive it. So uh, in that way, then you need a baffle of some kind to restore the pressure differential. But that's got nothing to do with round window. Okay, I understand. Um, what do you feel is the ideal material from a middle ear mechanics point of view to replace an eardrum with when repairing a perforation? Okay, so that's a complicated question in the sense that uh, it depends on the size of the perforation and it depends on the clinic whether you want something clinically ideal or mechanically ideal. Uh, so for a small perforation when the boundary and the insert and everything else is more or less intact, anything is fine because you just need to restore the baffle effect because really you just need to get a pressure differential across the uh, tympanic membrane. Now, if you start to have bigger loss of tympanic membrane, so you're losing the boundary conditions and you're losing much larger parts of the tympanic membrane, then the mechanical properties of the membrane itself uh, should become more important. Uh, in that case, one might think that the closer you can get to the original structure of the tympanic membrane, the more likely you are to have normal hearing. So and then the actual tympanic membrane is actually quite complicated. It has uh, it's anisotropic, that means it's different stiffness in different directions. Uh, so something closer to stiffness of the original tympanic membrane would be better. Now from a clinical point of view, you might want to use something stiffer than the original tympanic membrane because often these are pathological ears that have negative pressure or other things that might cause retraction in pockets. So from a clinical point of view, there are reasons to use other materials apart from the purely most mechanically advantageous. Okay, let's talk about acicular prostheses. Um, when you're placing one onto an intact stapes head or onto a stapes footplate, um, what effect do prosthesis mass, the size of the head of the prosthesis, the length and the tension of the prosthesis have? Okay, so these are some of the uh, variables that we've tried to investigate systematically in our, in our cadaveric models in Temper Bone Lab. Um, essentially, what we found is that mass affects, is, middle is relatively insensitive to mass, reasonable size masses, 30, 40 milligrams anyway, even 60 milligrams, uh, with little effect, uh, even at the high frequency, uh, even at the higher frequencies, at one or two kilohertz. At about four kilohertz, you start to see some effects of some of these uh, mass loadings. Um, so mass doesn't seem to be a huge effect, except at the higher frequencies. Um, uh, the uh, the head size, well, you have to have a big enough head size you can sample all the tympanic membrane because at high frequency it breaks up into nodal vibration patterns and you don't want to be sampling just one node. But in the experiments we did, uh, which was uh, looking at head sizes about 3 to 6 millimeters or so, uh, we found very little difference. And uh, you may as well use a head size that's convenient to put in, about 3 or 4 millimeters, uh, rather than 
a larger one. Uh, and um, so that, that's been what we found. The tension, in fact, is the biggest effect we found of it, of much of the problems looked at. And that, as you might expect, because the middle layer stiffness dominating low frequencies was was mostly affecting low frequencies. So putting a prosthesis under a lot of tension, either by stiffening the annular ligament or by stiffening the tympanic membrane, seemed to have quite a large effect, about 10-15 dB effect in lower frequencies and reducing transmission. Okay, so further on this point, what effect does securing a prosthesis under the malleus handle have when compared with direct coupling to the tympanic membrane? So this is one of those... Um, questions that I don't even have a clear, uh, I don't have a clear understanding in my own mind um, if there is an advantage. Clinically, it's equivocal. People do talk about it. It certainly is a mechanical advantage sometimes in stabilizing the prosthesis, can be. But if the malice is too far forward, then you end up with having a, an angulate prosthesis, which is a, which turns a, a translational vector into a rotational vector, because then you have to have a then is a kind of a, an angle ends up rotating on the head of a stapes or rotating the foot plate. So there's a mechanical disadvantage from that point of view. On the other hand, if there is a catenary lever effect, and that is controversial, uh, you might gain something just from going to the tympanic membrane. Now, the experiments we did, we found about a five, roughly about five dB frequency difference, uh, uh, sort five dB difference in the lower frequencies mostly from going to the malleus versus going to the uh, versus going to tympanic membrane, going to Stapy's head. Um, but they could have been contaminated with tension effects. Very different, it's very difficult to separate the tension out from changing the geometry because when you go to the malleus, you often under a little bit less tension than when you're going straight to tympanic membrane. Even though we try to get that into account, that's very difficult to be 100% sure. So I'm not clear, but there's something to be said, pros and cons both ways. It, I don't think the effect is a huge one, and I think you should think about the malleus as a stabilizer. Uh, if you can use it to stabilize your prosthesis without without having it so far interior that actually ends up angulating it. Okay. What do you feel are the key areas of scarring or adhesion formation that can cause suboptimal hearing results? Well, the um, in in practice we find you know areas of scarring uh, tend to be TM thickening, uh, tympanic uh, membrane it can be uh, can be very. Uh, uh, can be thickened up because of a lot of TM disease. They can be scarring around the prosthesis, around the oval window, of course. Those are the things that cause a lot of problems. Um, you, you can have thickening, you can have uh, thickening of the foot plate. Without, that's very difficult to pick up sometimes. Minor stiffness of foot plate is very difficult to pick up clinically. Uh, sometimes we we often find on revision surgery uh, that the prosthesis, if it's something like hydroxyapatite or sculpted ossicle, can be adherent to the promontory or to the facial ridge or perhaps to the posterior annulus, annular margin. Um, in experiments we did with uh, cementing the prosthesis, we found huge effects from from uh, from cementing it, for instance, to the promontory. So uh, so thickening, uh, so stiffening of the prosthesis, uh, uh, sorry, scarring of the prosthesis is probably one of the major effects that affects uh, the cyclo functioning um, down the road after cycloplasty. Okay. The final part of the interview is something called the final word. This is a chance for you to either reiterate something important that we've already covered or talk about some important future directions in middle ear mechanics. So for the final word, I'll leave it over to you, Professor Vance. Well, I think when you try to understand um, cyclo reconstruction, one thing you have to try to understand is that if you want impedance matching, you have to have a vibrating tympanic membrane. That's the engine of impedance matching. So that's not as easy as it sounds. That means you have to have uh, a thin tympanic membrane that can vibrate. You need to avoid uh, fluid in the middle ear. You can have scar tissue filling up the middle ear. 
you can't have uh, <clears throat> you can't have uh, well a lot of negative pressure, so it's retracted. You have to have air in the middle, enough air so that it, there's not a there's enough compliance for it to vibrate. You can't have a perforation tympanic membrane, or you don't have a trans. So, achieving a vibrating tympanic membrane is the first step to, impedance, to getting uh, good impedance matching, and that's all the biological process that we talked about. Uh, stop that from happening. If you have that, you have a reasonable chance of getting a good hearing result. But it's it's naive to think you can get that without achieving that first step. And we're working with some technologies in our labs that might let us, in in vivo, in patients, uh, measure the vibrations of a tympanic membrane, even through it uh, using optical coherence tomography, OCT. And that might give us some new insights in how some of these things interact with each other. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Professor Bent. Thank you so much, Nick. And that concludes this episode of ENT Expert Opinion. Thanks so much for listening. If you have an idea of someone that we should interview or an idea for a topic, please get in touch with us at info at entexpertopinion.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and give us a rating on iTunes if you get a chance. Thanks again.